You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Please welcome our friend Joel Richardson. Thanks so much, Randy. Thank you so much, Randy. I was going to do a ballet skip up here to bring it all together, but I, I backed down. I decided not to. So good morning. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something here. I'm going to open my Bible and then lay my phone in it. So we're just going to look at a few, um, a handful of scriptures this morning, and as Randy said, he asked me about a week ago if I could just share a few things about Israel. So let me just back up. Um, it's a little more than two weeks now. I'm not even sure the exact day. Was it October 7th? <clears throat> so I was actually in Saudi Arabia um, with a tour group, but we were actually in a town called Huckle, which is right on the border of Jordan. So we, the hotel that we were staying at when all of the nightmare broke loose in Israel. We were just 15 miles from the border of Elat, and so at night, you know, we would just look up at the lights, and um, let me back up a little bit. So for those of you who don't know, you know, I, I sort of work with and partner with a handful of different ministries um, that are focused more on the Middle East or on the Islamic world. One of the ministries is called FAI, Frontier Alliance International. So um, in January of 2020, so this was just literally weeks before COVID uh, emerged, we actually had a group of about 80 in Israel, and it was a tour. It was a tour slash conference, but it was not a standard tour to Israel where you just go to historical, biblical Christian sites. We were taking Christians around to the borders of Israel so they could better understand the security situation in Israel, okay? So Israel, you know, this little nation the size of New Jersey, they have, um, I want to say about, you know, a little under 5 million visitors per year, of which about 70% are Christians. The vast majority, they go to these historical biblical sites, and they don't interact with Israelis at all. The average Israeli has almost zero contact with these millions of Christians that come to their country every year. And so for us, being an effective light, right, being an effective ambassador of Jesus, you know, there's a lot of different philosophies in the body of Christ in terms of how we relate to different people. But from my perspective, if you're not just a good human, if you're not a good neighbor, then you're probably going to be a really horrible witness for Jesus. And so from our perspective, you can't just say, well, we need to preach the gospel to the Jews. You know, they do need to hear the gospel, but there's history, there's context. You know, I've written an entire book that lays out the long, incredibly consistent, painful pattern throughout history of Christians, just like you and I, mistreating and abusing and even at times slaughtering the Jewish people. The vast majority of Christians are almost oblivious to that history, but the Jews themselves are very familiar with it. 
So the idea that we're just, you know, we have some privilege that we're entitled to preach to a people that are like, you guys are the ones that for hundreds of years killed us. And you expect, you know, so we have this term, right, like uh, mansplaining, which I do for a living. But um, we, we do this thing called Gentile-splaining. We think we're going to go to the Jews and be like, let me tell you, Mr. Jew, how it is. You don't understand Isaiah 53 and all the Messianic prophets. Like we have this, you need to hear what I have to say. But if we don't start out in a place of just basic being a good neighbor, then we're delusional. Okay, so we bring a tour group to Israel to help them understand the security situation that everyday people have to live with. We took them up to the border of Lebanon. We said, this is the village that for two years Hezbollah was tunneling under their village. At night, the people hear hammering and they hear voices under their house. I mean, think about that. As your kids, you go, the reality is they live with the reality that at any minute, monsters with AK-47s could pop out of the ground and want to massacre your family. And that's exactly what they had planned what they planned to do. Of course, the IDF knew they were doing it, so they didn't say anything. They waited, and they let them dig for like a year and a half. And just before they got to the end, they opened it up and filled it with concrete. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Try again. But um, So that was on the northern border. We took a group down to this Moshav, which is right next to Gaza. And so Moshav is like a little farming community. You've got the kibbutz. Uh, kibbutzim or the kibbutzes and the moshavs. These are sort of part of the history of how Israel was settled, these little communities. But we went down there and they explained. They're like, you know, look, our kids all have PTSD because rockets hit their kindergarten. This is Gaza right here. You know, we look at it every day. And, and look, you know, many of you have probably been to Israel, but many of you have not. Um, from a distance, what Israel is, it's very difficult to understand. I'll just say this. Israel has more white people with dreadlocks per capita than any nation in the world. Like, like I'm just kidding, sort of. It, I mean, it's like the most hippie country in the world. Like, every, the, the vast majority are not these religious, orthodox settlers. The vast majority are people who just want some place to raise their family, and they don't want to be hated. So we went there to that kibbutz. Um, they lost over 20 people. You know, people slaughtered in their homes. And so we're down there on the border, you know, right close, 15 miles from Israel, and the social media stuff just exploded. And, and I was trying to lead a tour, and I was trying to not, just not even look, because it was just too much. Like it was just, I was just, you know, breaking down. It was like brutal. And so then, the last night, so it's about four nights in, we're in a hotel, we, I stopped at a little hotel just to sleep for like four hours before we hopped on a plane, my wife calls me, and she's crying, or she's not crying, but she was upset, and my son had got suspended that day at school for flashing a Sieg Hail sign to a Jewish kid. So there was a bunch of kids that were doing it, and my son joined in, he didn't, had no idea what he was doing. But I just completely lost it, you know, like, I just broke down, like, that was just the end. And so now I have to come home and talk to this Jewish family and apologize and say, I am so, you know, so p p try to put yourself in the, in the 
shoes of this family. They're watching Jews get slaughtered in their houses simply because they're Jewish and for no other reason. And then people are protesting all over the world, celebrating what's happening, saying this was an absolute legitimate move. And, you know, they live here in Leewood, you know, in, in Kansas, and they've got a group of about six kids are flashing their kid Hitler sign and laughing about it. Now, just for context, my son's African-American. Um, it's not easy to raise a black Nazi, by the way. I think there's one in Sweden. <clears throat> but um, I'm just kidding. Look, my son was oblivious, and I, we had a good talk with him. But how do you explain to this family, like, hey, you know, please understand, you know, my son is a minority in an extremely white school. Most often when he gets in trouble, it's because he's trying to fit in. You know, you can't tell them, like, please have sympathy for my son, who just, they're scared. They're legitimately scared. But so, you know, I came back and we, we exchanged several emails and I think, you know, when all was said and done, I was like, look guys, this is what I do for a living. Like, I named my son Levi. It's a Jewish name, which means to bring together. I said, my whole life is dedicated to trying to, you know, help the Jewish and Christian communities get along and so forth and, you know, a white family coming together with a black family and this sort of thing. But, you know, for that reason, the irony of it was just devastating. Um, but they said, you know, of all the families, you're the only one that reached out to us to say anything. I'm like, man, there's like six families. I'm sure they were devastated and embarrassed, but still, you don't just send an email and say, we are so, so sorry. So I just want to talk, I just want to say a few things about standing in solidarity with Israel. Now look, with regard to Israel, there is so much that could be said. Let me just start with some very basic Christian points. And guys, this is all about being good neighbors, being good humans, and therefore being good witnesses, being good Christians. So first of all, the gospel is for the poor. The Lord actually repeatedly states that he shows favoritism toward the poor. Now, when I say poor, I don't just mean economically, you know. Poor can mean a lot of different things. Psalm 72, 11 through 14. Let all the kings bow down before him, the anointed one. All nations shall serve him, for he will deliver the needy when the needy cries for help, the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. The Lord, his eyes, his priority, they are focused on the needy, those who have no help, the marginalized, the hated, the rejected, the forgotten, the sick, the lame, the blind, like throughout Scripture, this is the consistent testimony. He will have compassion on the poor and the needy. The lives of the needy he will save. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence. Their blood will be precious in his sight. Jesus actually pointed to the fact that he gave himself to the poor as validation of his messianic ministry, as validation of the fact that he was who he believed uh, he was representing himself to be. Luke 4, verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to Hollywood, to the rich, to the successful. No, he, 
He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Like, there's very few people out there. They're like, man, life's just going great. Everything's fantastic. I'm wealthy. I'm successful. I'm killing it. I think I'm just going to repent of all my sins. Just give my life to Jesus. It doesn't usually work that way. It's the Lord allows us to get in touch with our brokenness, our poverty, our need. And then we go, Lord, I need you. Like, it's always from a place of brokenness. Maybe there's a few weirdos out there that... Then the family of God that we're part of, this whole room, this family, is a family of fools. I love that reality. It always helps contextualize who we are if we ever forget who we are. Matthew 11, 25 through 26. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden, you have hidden the, the wisdom of God from the wise and the intelligent Instead, you've revealed them to babes, to infants, to fools. I thank you, Father, that you've hidden these things from the, the know-it-alls, but you've revealed it to the foolish and the weak things of this world. And then he called us into this family. That's who we are. We are a family of fools, of those who are aware of our own poverty. Okay, so there's just a basic biblical principle. We can all understand the Lord is for the underdog. He is for the broken. He is for those that, through life circumstances that are imposed upon them, even at birth, or who choose to imitate Jesus and put themselves at the back of the line willingly, right? Have in yourselves the same attitude as Christ Jesus. So although he's God Almighty, like he spoke in the universe came into existence. He didn't consider equality with God something that he needed to demand or he needed to be treated that way. No, rather, he made himself a servant. And guys, we're not God. Jesus himself is God Almighty. He made himself a servant. He says, have in yourselves that same attitude. Put yourself at the back of the line because the day is coming, the day of the Lord is coming when everything gets flipped upside down. Those who put themselves, that clawed their way to the top of the food chain of the pyramid that exploited those under them and that sort of thing, they will be humiliated, humbled, and or cast into the lake of fire. That's the day of the Lord. And those that were humble, that were meek, that were servants, they will be lifted up. Right? Come, you have been faithful over little. Take charge over ten cities. That's the essence of what everything is moving toward the day of justice, the day of the Lord. So, Joel chapter 3, 1 through 3. Here's an end-time eschatological text. So many other passages speak of the same thing. It says that in the last days, just before the day of the Lord, before the return of Jesus, the Gentiles, the nations, will gather together and form an alliance, a coalition, and invade the land of Israel. It's very straightforward. Joel 3, 1 through 3. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Okay, so Judah and Jerusalem, they've been restored. The nation has been rebuilt. We've seen this over the past 80-plus years, 100 years. And the Lord said, I, I, the Lord, will gather all of the Gentiles, all of the nations, and I will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat is the same thing as the Kidron Valley. Okay, it's the valley that runs in between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. If you're standing on the Mount of Olives looking down at the Temple Mount at the Eastern Gate, this valley that runs, that is the Valley of Jehoshaphat, also called the Kidron Valley. Now, I'm going to do a little sort of geography. So you're looking at me, 
let's say that I am the Temple Mount and you guys are on the Mount of Olives. The Kidron Valley is in between us. To, the, to your left is the Valley of Hinnom, the Valley of Gehenna. That's the valley that is used to refer to the hell, the lake of fire. On your right, in Jesus' day, was the Sheep Gate. That will make sense in a second. So the Lord says, I'm going to bring all the nations down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and there, there I will enter into judgment with the nations on behalf of my people, my inheritance Israel. So half of the church today says Israel is no longer Israel. Israel is no longer the people of God. But the scriptures say that when all the nations gather together against Jerusalem, the Lord says, then I'm going to judge them on behalf of my people, my inheritance, Israel. The people in the land right now, though the majority are in unbelief, the Lord still calls them his people because he has a plan. This is getting a bit more technical and complicated. He has a plan that when all is said and done, all of Israel that remains, when he returns, the remnant, those who are left, all of Israel will be saved. And so the Lord looks into the future, and he speaks of the future as though it's now. So he still calls them my people, even though the majority presently reject him. And he actually says he's going to judge the nations because of the way that they invade his land. And he goes on, he says, they've scattered my people among the nations. They've divided up my land. They have cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a prostitute, sold a girl for wine. It actually talks about human trafficking and dividing the land, things that are very relevant right now with all of the prisoners. Now, the Olivet Discourse is called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus gave it on the Mount of Olives. They left the temple, they walked away from the temple, and it was one of these moments where they're looking, going, man, that temple's amazing, and he goes, I'm telling you, the whole thing is going to be destroyed. They're like, whoa, 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 what? You know, like imagine going to D.C. and you do a little tour, and they're like, this is the National Mall, and all of a sudden your tour guide turns and he goes, I'm telling you what, see the White House? I shouldn't even joke about this. I'll probably, the FBI will probably pull me over. He's like, the whole thing is going to be a smoking ash heap. <laughs> you know, you're like, whoa, we got the schizophrenic guide. But... That's essentially what was being said, is like, none of this is going to be left. And they go, okay, so tell us a little, elaborate a bit, please, Jesus. They're sitting on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus gives his sermon on the end times, called the Olivet Discourse. And at the end of the Olivet Discourse, oh, actually, let me, um, I'm going to read a verse first. Where is it? Matthew 24, part of the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, verse 21 through 22. He says, for then there shall be a great tribulation. He's speaking of the last days. He says, there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. He says, at that time, there is going to be a tribulation that will be unparalleled, unlike anything that has ever taken place in human history. Like, that's a pretty strong statement. Now, could that be hyperbole? Possibly. The point is something absolutely unfathomably horrible is coming in the future. And then he says, unless those days have been cut short, no life would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, that time will be cut short. There is this horrific time of tribulation. And then at the end of the same sermon, 
Matthew 25, and people often don't connect this parable with the Olivet Discourse, but Jesus gave what's called the parable of the sheep and goat judgment. And so Matthew 25, verses 31 through 36, there's a bit here. Jesus says, when the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, when he comes in his glory, so when he returns shining like the sun in radiating glory, just like the God of Sinai, radiating and shining, not just splitting the ocean in half, but ripping the sky in half, coming back with his angels, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. The glorious throne, by the way, is the throne of his father David. After he, he's presently seated at the right hand of the Father, but after he returns, then he will sit on his glorious throne, which is, according to all of the prophets, he will restore the royal Jewish Davidic monarchy. If you reject that idea, you have to just simply rip large sections of the Bible out and just throw them away, or you spiritualize them which sounds good in large segments, segments of the church, but it doesn't work in real life. Tell your spouse sometime, I've always been faithful to you. Not literally, but mystically, I've always been No, like that doesn't work in real life, does it? All the nations will be gathered before him. So after Jesus returns, he will restore the throne of his father David, and all the Gentiles will be gathered together before him. Just like in Joel 3, I will gather the Gentiles to Jerusalem. And then he says, and he will separate them one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father. So again, remember, if you're facing, the Mount, you're facing the Temple Mount, you're on the Mount of Olives. Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives, and he starts talking about something that sounds just like Joel 3. I'll gather the Gentiles here to Jerusalem, and I'll judge them. That's what he said in Joel 3. Why did he judge them in Joel 3? Because of my inheritance, my people. Here in Matthew 24, Jesus just said, Something horrible, unparalleled is coming. Then he says, and when that happens, I'm going to gather all the nations and I'm going to judge them. To those on the right, come, inherit my kingdom. Now, what was on the right? The sheep gate. To those on the left, he says, into the everlasting destruction, the lake of fire. It was a giant object lesson. God is a God of object lessons. He likes to burn things. He likes to tattoo our brains, to burn things into our minds. And this was, if you understand the geography, it makes absolute sense. Jesus was expounding upon Joel chapter 3. He says, he'll put the sheep on the right, the goats on the left. The king will say to those, come, you are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom. Now, again, these are the nations that was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Because I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And they're like, when? He goes, as you did it to the least of these, my brethren. He did it to me. Now, theologians have debated, well, does he, does he mean the poor in general? Does he mean Christians? Because Jesus said, who is my mother and my brothers, those who do my will? They go, his brothers, his brethren are Christians. So here he's talking about Christians. Or is he talking about Israel? Well, if we understand the Old Testament backdrop to what he was referring to, we understand the context of what he was talking about. He's talking about the Gentiles gathering together to divide my land and to sell my people as, as, 
in human trafficking. I mean, that's, that's the context of what he's expounding upon. What he's expounding upon here in the sheep and goat judgment is Matthew 24, then there will be a great tribulation such as has never been. And so the point is this. The scriptures, in my opinion, you can't get around it. They are clear that something is coming so horrific, so horrific that it will be a barometer that Jesus will actually use to judge the nations, whether or not they inherit the millennial kingdom or are cast into the lake of fire. There will be something that will actually test the hearts of man. And what, what's happening right now in Israel, it's not, it's not it yet. But we are seeing a glimpse. We're seeing half of the world is like demon-possessed. They're out there celebrating the fact that Jews were slaughtered. On campuses throughout the United States, Jewish kids are scared. Think about that. All across the Western world. And, and you get, I mean, it's craziness. Like you see guys out there wearing transgender dudes in dresses, celebrating Palestine, you know, LGBT for Palestine. That's like chickens for KFC. You're just like, like, you guys, seriously, come on now. It's worse, actually. The whole world is, is being sifted, being tested. Israel, in very many ways, it's a barometer to test the hearts of man. But we, as followers of Jesus, we want to be people of the gospel, and in order to be effective people of the gospel, we have to start out by being good neighbors. And to me, that means standing with Israel in a time of absolute tragedy and being prepared to stand with them even more so in the future. Amen? I'm going to play a little clip. Um, this is uh, Mayor Eric Adams of New York City. I probably, I, I, have no, I don't know much about him. I probably don't necessarily agree with a lot of his politics. But he just gave a speech after all of this, and it was by far the best statement that anyone has made. To me, it was the embodiment of how our posture should be as Christians in the body of Christ. And so if we can get it to play, just a little clip here, and then we'll shift into um, Q&A. If not, I can just do some jokes. Oh, it is, wait, distraction. So let's see, if I had done the ballet thing. <laughs> that was not too bad, actually. I was, that was the Halloween dance. All of the above. But it was effective distraction. If it doesn't work, it's okay. <laughs> or I'll just play it on my phone. Okay, we'll skip it. I mean, sorry. Look it up. Look it up. So basically, it's Eric Adam. Yeah, hit that. Oh. We're almost there. 
Oh, okay. But we still have hostages who have not come home to their family. We are not all right. When Hamas believes that they are fighting on behalf of something and their destructive, despicable action that carried out. We are not all right when right here in the city of New York, you have those who celebrate at the same time when the devastation is taking place. We are not all right. We're not going to say and act like everything is fine. Everything is not fine. Israel has a right to defend himself. Your fight is our fight. We will not be all right until every person responsible for this act is held accountable. This was something that showed Hamas must be disbanded and destroyed immediately. And now I'm here today to say not only am I the chief executive of this city, but I'm your brother. I'm your brother. Your fight is my fight. brother it's just like man it just if there's an attitude that we should have right now toward the global Jewish community not just Israel is we are I'm sure there's um, a lot of different thoughts that have questions and so forth. I want to set this mic out. If you have a question, it would be super helpful if you'd step to the microphone because that way everybody can hear it. Uh, we've got a little time here to do this, so I'll move that in a second. But one question we did have come in. Somebody asked, how does this war fit into the biblical end time storyline, and will this lead to kind of a false peace pact? Is this where this is going? If you want to dive into that, and then I'll leave this for anybody else. Sure. Yeah, so look, when, with questions like this, we don't know. The answer is, I don't know where it's going. I'm not a prophet. I don't know the future. No one does. Even the prophets don't know the future. Um, but it could be. So I think that's probably the best answer is, like, look, these things are leading up to, like, let me put it this way. What I just read, for example, in Joel chapter 3 and Matthew 24 and 25, let's just say the, the geopolitical landscape, you know, if you're looking at the, lands, the mountain, land, you know, the mountain peaks, you're out in Colorado or something like that, the geopolitical landscape of the earth right now, it's coming into alignment with the geopolitical landscape that the Bible describes. Exactly when it's all going to just click into place, we don't know. Could this be the big thing that then leads to this hunger for peace, which sort of paves the way for this false peace dictator, the Antichrist, to emerge? Yeah, absolutely. But we need to be so careful. One of the biggest problems within the whole prophecy community is every time something happens, it goes, this is that. You know, you get people, they almost do like Bible roulette, like 
you know, when the World Trade Centers went down, they're like, oh, oh this is here in, in some obscure passage in Isaiah, something about the two the towers fell. Oh, that must, you know, or JFK, get, there must be some obscure passage that talks about JFK getting assassinated. Like, whatever. No. The Bible tells a big overarching story about where things are heading in the last days, but we don't, it's, it's dangerous to try to connect every single event that unfolds in the news with some, other than in a larger general sense, it's coming into focus. So that, I think that's a much more responsible um, way to approach that. Thank you. So I was raised uh, replacement theology sure. without knowing it. Yeah. And, uh, and, and as I've gotten older and wiser, I've been become more right and I've, I mean, correct, accurate in my theology that sure. replacement theology is not the way to go. That was kind of a joke, but kind of for real. Um, so, but when I talk to friends that I was raised with, we both love Jesus so much and all the stuff. And I, I feel like when I bring the, the phrase replacement theology, it, it kind of packs a punch, which I like to talk about. Sure. And then they come back with, no, it's fulfillment theology or supersessionism. And so I would, my question is kind of like, um, I, I think my question is, do we hold the line and say, church, we don't replace Israel? And do we declare that uh, in our, and, and to what levels do we do that? Um, I think my question has, is just kind of a muddy, muddled question about replacement theology and what's how your, you What's your last handle. name again? Lima. Lima? Brazilian. You're the old Lima. <laughs> I'm the new Lima. <laughs> now, if you want to be included in the Limas, you're welcome. Um, you're welcome to be part of the Lemas, but just to be clear, right. you, you know, it's, you, you, can, you can be all that you are called to be. You can, you can find fulfillment if you join me, um, but you're not, God's done with the Lemas. But that's not, that's not racist. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's actually, no, okay, so I'm being silly. No, yeah. Again, whenever you take some of the things that we try to pass off as reasonable within the theological world and just apply it to real life, you go, yeah, that's, that's pretty moronic. That's pretty insane. That's pretty racist. That's pretty rude. But we pass it off in the theological world. Well, yeah, but all of the super intellectual seminaries and all the bunch of my great teachers say that, so it must be acceptable. No, it's not acceptable. It's not acceptable to tell anyone that they as a people have been dissolved by God and it's God's will that they are now dispersed among the nations never to be a people again. Yeah. So I hold the line personally. To me, I have a very strong conviction that it's evil. Replacement theology is evil. Now, I want to be clear. There's like great guys out there that I love, that I look up to, that I think are amazing theologians that believe these things because they went to seminary and their teachers taught it and there's a culture and people don't always understand the implications of things they believe. But, and forgive me, you know, it used to be back in the day, we would say, you know, you got conservatives and liberals. Well, then liberal became kind of a dirty word. So then Hillary would say, I'm a progressive. So now you've just put lipstick on a pig. Yeah. Um, <laughs> inclusion, you're trying to pretty something up that's yeah. ugly. And you're trying to make it sound more palatable, more acceptable. This is PR spin. Inclusion theology or fulfillment theology are two different words that people use to try to spruce up what is more accurate to call it replacement theology or even to be even more accurate, divorce theology, wow. which is the idea that God got tired of his first bride and divorced her and he moved on to us because we're 
the pure, spotless, unblemished ones, right? Does that describe us just perfectly? The body of Christ, we're just like, not like the Jews, like, man, they got issues. We, on the other hand, we're the new model. And so how, how does that affect our witness to the nations? God is faithful. You know, your mercies are new every morning to me, but not to that whore Israel. I mean, literally, this is language that's used by theologians. Um, I just tweeted, let me pull it up. I just tweeted to a guy. Because they always frame it like, well, you, you guys that are into the end times, like you guys are always constantly doing the same thing, which is... You know, you're pointing to everything that happens in the news. You guys are like, oh, that's prophecy. It's ridiculous. We're so tired of it. We, we are far more educated. We're the ones with all the PhDs. You guys are all the hillbillies from, <laughs> forgive me, I'm doing all that. You know, you guys are like the theological hip, um, hillbillies who don't really, that's nah, not working. Literally, this theologian, this was published by Erdman's in a book called The Seed of Abraham by a guy named Albertus Peters. I mean, this is a book that's widely read in seminaries still to this day. And he says, he says, look at this. The Lord's will was that Israel would no longer exist as a people. It says, but here they are because of their stubborn persistence. Like he's literally bemoaning the fact that they still exist. And anyway, so for me, replacement theology, and, and look, ideas have consequences. Once someone, once I say to you that God doesn't really like the lemus, his will is that you permanently are just no longer, in, you don't have a home, you're just spread out among the nations, that you're disbanded as a people, and I go, God doesn't like you, and I'm God's servant, how should I treat you? And that's exactly what replacement theology led to throughout the medieval period, throughout Europe, and Christians were asking what they called the Jewish question. How should we treat the Jews? Should we be nice to them and maybe they'll repent, or should we give them a heavy hand so they can feel the wrath of God on their lives? That was the question that was debated among Christian theologians for hundreds of years, and then finally Luther came along and he goes, I'm going to answer the Jewish question. Here's what we should do. Burn their synagogues to the ground destroy their prayer books, drive them like screaming dogs from one city to the next. You go, Luther said that? Yes. And then Hitler came along. Now Hitler was not a Christian, to be very clear, but Hitler said, I'm going to finally solve the Jewish problem. With what? The final solution. Christian theologians, replacement theology, laid the foundation for the Holocaust. There is a clear absolutely clear point of continuity from what Christian theologians have been debating for hundreds of years right to the Holocaust. So yeah, to me, I'm going to hold the line. It doesn't mean I don't love the guys. I could point to a dozen of them. You know, Sam Storms. I love the guy. He's like one of my favorite people in the world. I disagree with him on replacement theology. And you know, you could, you could list 50 others. So, and I want to be clear, like I highly respect, honor, and appreciate him as a brother across the boards. Sorry. So, um, I'm honestly surprised at how many people are like in this foolish state, like with all the colleges, they're rooting for Hamas. They're like, yeah, well, Jewish people have done this to them and they're like for them, even though we've seen like so many videos of 
of all the things that has happened to the Jews. So my question is, why is that happening to so many nations? Like, they're all under this, um, like, I don't know, they're all blind and siding with Hamas. Like, why is that happening? And is there specific, like, evil, like, spiritually talking, spiritual warfare, is there, is there specific evil principality that's, like, doing that? Yes. So, yeah, fantastic question. So, um, okay, so when you study the history of Jew hatred throughout history, you can go, like, okay, like, in the 1930s in Germany, you go, the reason is because um, they had too much involvement in the financial system. You know, so they'll, they'll come up with some idea. But they were, the Jews in Germany before the Holocaust, they were profoundly integrated. They weren't walking around wearing Jewish outfits. They didn't stand out. They looked like every other German. But yet they turned on them. You can point to another time in history and you go, well, that's because during that time they, they were distinct. They were, a lot of them were religious. And you go, so they were a different people, a minority. And they, Scholars of anti-Semitism cannot find one single point of commonality. It's different every time. And so they go, we can't explain this phenomena of Jew hatred. Why does, at any time in history, for any different reason, somehow people find a reason to hate the Jewish people? And so, um, what's the guy's name? Weinrich, uh, he's a scholar, of Holocaust scholar. He said, staring into the Holocaust is like staring into a black abyss and hoping it doesn't stare back, which is the point is going, there's something behind this. There's something deep and dark and intelligent and demonic that's behind this. Absolutely. My, how old are you? How old are you? I'm 17. 17. So when my daughter, my kids went to Blue Valley North, my daughter, who's 19 now, when she was 17, she goes, Dad, you know, again, my kids don't track with half of the stuff that I'm talking about and so forth. But she goes, Dad, you know, like, at my school, um, she goes, you know, like, it's totally bad to be racist. I'm like, yeah, of course, it's, racism is bad. She's like, if anyone ever said anything really racist against, you know, whites, it'd be like, that's racist. If anyone said anything really racist against blacks, that would, everyone would say no. She goes, but why is it that all of my white friends and black friends all make fun of the Jews? Why is it that the Jews are the one people that are okay to be racist against? And I said... That's a great question. Let's talk about it. And now look, you add to, you add on top of the fact that there's just this long historical demonic trend of Satan stirring up hatred, and it comes in all kinds of different ideas. There's, I could get into all the different little things that you'll see on, oh, they, they control the whole world, they control the banking system, they control Hollywood, they're, they're involved in the porn industry more than anyone else, or they, you know, whatever it might be. Or they'll point to some verse, well, it says the synagogue of Satan in the book of Revelation, and that's referring, you know, all these different things that float around, and it becomes acceptable, Kanye and so forth, you know, with his whole thing. If you, but here's the thing. Kids, if you're 16, 17, right up until you're, you're, you, like everyone is susceptible to trends. Everyone's susceptible to trends. There is a reason why I'm not wearing bell bottoms uh, right now. It's because I get affected by trends and marketing and so forth. But kids are especially susceptible to it. And if something is just 
a culture of acceptability, then kids just jump in. Half the kids at these colleges, they don't understand anything about Israel and the Palestinian cause. These guys wearing, these transgender guys wearing dresses, saying free, free Palestine, like that, it doesn't get more ignorant than that. But if this is what's popular today, then on the college campuses, it's easy to recruit a bunch of gullible kids to think they're part of some justice cause when they're actually rooting for Hamas. Look, what these terrorist organizations do is they give away bread. They do humanitarian stuff in the community so that people go, no, they're not terrorists, they're good, they help us out, they deliver rice and you know, things like that. So every, you know, the Taliban does the same thing. So there's that, but, but this is a, an important side because people make it like it's this, um, you know, this morally equivalent thing, like, well, the Jews are crazy and the Hamas is crazy. No, you have one people who overwhelmingly want peace. And you have the other side, it's about 60% support for Hamas in Gaza. To be very clear, you've got a 40% of people, or probably more than that, who are innocent, good Palestinian men, women, and children who are victims of this insanity. But Hamas itself, this organization, as part of their very charter, their constitution, is this um, prophecy, this hadith that's part of the Islamic tradition that says, and they say, they're, they're constitution says we live to fulfill this prophecy it says the day of judgment will not come until the Muslims fight against the Jews and kill them until there are only a few Jews left hiding behind a tree or a rock and then the tree of the rock itself will cry out and say oh faithful Muslim there's a Jew behind me come and kill him so you're dealing with a, an organization which is dedicated as part of their constitution to commit a genocide against their neighbors and then we get mad when Israel defends themselves. And sometimes they do it wrong. Sometimes you get settlers that'll abuse a bunch of Arabs or do horrible things or, you know, there might be disproportionate. But suddenly the whole world becomes a critic and tells Israel how they can defend themselves. Mind your own business, right? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, don't tell me how I can defend my family. That type of thing. So anyway, I'm on a rant, but... I'd love to hear your thought. You kind of just answered it, but internal politics in Israel. So what are your thoughts on the government of Israel and Israeli <clears throat> politics, not just the way that we perceive internationally, but what's going on on the inside? So that's my first question. And then I have been criticized. I get this all the time. You're not one of those people who thinks that Israel, the nation, uh, that everything the nation of Israel does is right. So the, uh, it's in a, always in a mocking tone, if I ever sure. say. Well, um, so then, you know, what, what would you tell people who want to classify the Jewish people or the di diaspora, especially probably those who are not in the land, yes. um, and the nation of Israel differently? So there's the, you, you kind of follow me. It's Elaborate more on that last one. The last one is like, um, the well, difference, what is the difference between the difference between so Jews? like a you know like a Jew in New York or a Jew who has made Aliyah is actually a citizen of Israel and then yeah. you get into the geopolitics of of Israel. Sure. So that's been my biggest pushback with Christians that you're not one of those, are you? So here, okay, so yeah, so <laughs> sorry. Um, the irony is that like every seminary graduate is supposed to somehow have like this elaborate opinion based on Israeli politics. Like it's the only nation in the world that you're somehow required to have strong opinions about every little policy detail. Why? Why Israel? Why? 
why is it, think about this, that the UN each year issues more like joint declarations of condemnation against the one state of Israel than every other nation in the world combined? Like, you know, you go, here's the UN, this global body, and they're like, we condemn Israel this much, and we condemn all of the other nations combined, including Iran and Syria and China and, you know, North Korea, we condemn them this much. Combined, you're just like, like you, you can't look at that and think there's any measure of objectivity. It's insanity. So then when someone mockingly goes, oh, so you're one of those John Hagee Christians that just reads about the rapture and you just stand with Israel no matter what because you don't understand the Bible like I do, you go, no, of course not. Israel has, does plenty of things wrong. But in a general sense, I can say what I just said, which is the vast majority of Israelis want peace, and they actually do. Yes, they make plenty of mistakes, but they actually do function with more restraint. More Look, Hamas came in and surprise attacked and killed a bunch of kids at a rave, dancing underneath a giant Buddhist statue, a peace party, and they massacred them, could, took them prisoners, raped them, and so forth. Israel knocks on the roof before they bomb. You got five minutes to get out. You know what I mean? Like, there's just a whole different morality. So that condescending thing, it just whatever. Like, I, I just, it just make me mad. But um, in terms of the difference between global Jews and Israel, there's a big difference. Like, this family that I talked to, they probably have never been to Israel. They probably have no, like, I'm, like, way more connected to Israel than, you know, the majority of American Reformed Jews, you know, don't usually have much of an interest um, or connection. But see, what's happening now in the discourse is people just go like, the Jews. The Jew, like, like some Buddhist Jew from Blue Valley, from Overland Park, is a lot different than some um, Lubavit, Lubavitch settler in the West Bank. But it's just the Jews. They're all in it together. They're all part of this conspiracy to take over the world and subjugate us Gentile. Like, it's these crazy, you go, do you, you realize that that secular atheist Jew that lives in Johnson County and that religious Jew that lives in Samaria, they don't, they, they, they're coming from such different worlds, but you just put them under the Jews, like they're all working together. It's, it's ridiculous. But what's happening right now is they'll say, well, you, the problem the reason that all of this is justified, the reason we're allowed to kill, rape, and murder, is because Israel shouldn't be there in the first place. They need to go back to Europe where they came from or wherever they came from. You go, okay, so go back to the United States, go back to Europe. Well, you just had the head of a synagogue was just stabbed to death in her home in Detroit because she's Jewish. So go back to where you came from. You'll be safe there. Go back to Europe. No, they're rioting in the streets celebrating the murder of Jews. So it's, it's one of these sort of slippery slopes where it's like, oh, it's all just because of Israel. And you go, okay, okay, so we don't want any fight. We'll just go back to Europe. And then they're like, we're going to kill you in Europe too because you guys are trying to take over the banking system and you guys are the synagogue of Satan. You know, whatever. Like there's just always a new excuse. There's always these changing. So you're dealing with insanity. So my question, Joel, is we don't really know where we're at in the eschatological timeline at this point, but I know we want to set our hearts in a posture of a marathon and not a sprint. And so what is the best way, in your opinion, to intercede for the Jewish people um, to stand with our brothers and sisters well, but also make sure that we maintain a heart posture that can last 
the duration of this. Yeah, that's a good one. So look, there's a tension, and I think there's a tension that all Christians should live with throughout history, which is, you know, on one hand, and I'll be honest with you, like I, I have got my head in this stuff all the time, and so anyone who's always peering into prophecy feels like it's tomorrow, probably, or the next day, maybe. But, um, but it feels like it's, it does, like the stuff is lying. I go, man, like we could actually... It's not just like on the horizon, like it actually could be here very soon. On the other hand, I send my kids to college. Do you know what I'm saying? So I'm planning for my kids to maybe grow up and have kids and for me to reach my 80s or whatever, but by the same token, there's a tension there where you're living with the urgency that the great trial could be upon us tomorrow. So there is that tension that we all need to work out and, and we need to be aggressive in culture and whatever the Lord's called us to be a light, to be, you know, if the Lord calls you into politics, you get involved in trying to impact culture, you know, the school board system and that sort of thing. But by the same token, you're prepared that, you know, you might not, you know, live long enough to have grandkids or what, you know what I'm saying? So in terms of interceding, like honestly for me right now, it's about standing with Israel. If you want to support Israel, yes, support organizations that are doing good gospel work. One for Israel is a, a great organization in the country. But support the IDF. Like how do you stand with someone when they're being massacred? You, 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 support, the organization, you support the outfit that's protecting them. You know, like, because oftentimes, again, this whole Gentile splaining thing, we as missionaries, we come to a country, like, okay, let me just give you an example. This is kind of a, there was a, a guy that was found out, he was caught maybe six months ago in Israel. He was living as a pretend Orthodox Jew in an Orthodox Jewish community. He was hiding. He didn't tell everyone that he believed in Jesus, but he was trying to secretly share the gospel and evangelize everyone. He got found out and caught. That is a mentality that exists in broad swaths of, of the body of Christ, where we, we sneak in, we go, hey, I'm just here as an English teacher. No, you're here as a missionary. Be honest about it. And they suspect that you're a missionary, but then they figure it out 15 years later, and they go, oh, so you've been lying to me for the past 15 years. You know, this type of thing. How would we all feel if a Muslim started coming to church, and he lied and pretended to be a Christian, but he was actually here to secretly convert us to Islam? We would call that a wolf in sheep's clothing. We shouldn't do it either. We should be very straightforward. So my opinion is when Christians come to Israel, you start out by saying, we're Christians. We're here because we want to bless you and love you. What do you need? Not let us tell you what you need. And that's generally how we do it. We go around the world and we say, well, we think you need whatever. And then we try to subtly find ways to argue and prove them that they're wrong and why they need to convert to a different religion. In my opinion, it's profoundly insensitive, and it's just not basic common social. Like, you don't treat anyone that way. You show up, you say, you're honest, you say, this is who we are, what can we do to help you? And they go, we need help with bomb shelters right now so our families don't die. You go, okay, let's start there. So that's my, how do you stand with them? said on social media, and I'm to feel insecure. And, you know, they have valid reasons.
hard there. <laughs> I can't. Especially Saudi Arabia and just the imminence of it that was, you know, sometime this fall. And, and just the unique dynamics between Iran and Hamas, Hezbollah, and just the, the animosity between the Shia Muslim world yeah. to Israel versus kind of the, the Sunni world, which is the majority. Yep. So, okay, so like explain the Middle East in 30 seconds. Um, okay, real quick though, ready? Watch this. Okay, ready? You've got about 2 billion Muslims just under right now. 15%-ish, 12-15% are Shia, okay, that's Iran. They're, you know, they've got all the icons and the imams, they're kind of like Catholics, they've got all this extra stuff, they're beating themselves on Ashura and bleeding everywhere like the Shia, right? Then you've got the, you know, 85, 87% are Sunni, okay, that's more mainstream, and I won't get into the whole history of that division, but they're just different, two different sects, if you will. Now, in the Middle East, you've really got four primary nations which want to be the top dog. You've got Iran, that's the most populous Shia nation in the whole Islamic world. They want to control and they want their Shia version of Islam to dominate. Then you've got Saudi Arabia. They think they should be the top dogs because they control Mecca and Medina, the two holy mosques, and they're rich and they're fake royals. And so they think they should, you know, they're privileged and they should be the most powerful. Uh, as the custodians of Mecca and Medina. Then you've got Egypt that thinks they should dominate because they're like over 100 million. They're the most populous Arab nation. And they have Al-Lazar University, which is kind of like the, the Oxford of the Islamic world. They think they're the brains of the Islamic world. And then you have Turkey, which again, the Turks are Turks. They're not Arabs. And they ruled the Middle East for 500 years, the Ottoman Empire. And they look down on the Arabs. The Turks think they're more cultured. So really, between those four, they're all kind of jockeying to see who can be the alpha dog, right, the top dog. Well, Saudi Arabia was in the process of engaging in this regional peace, this, this normalization with Israel, which is huge. But at the center of it was Israel would become the center of this global transportation hub. This was such a huge victory for Israel, because what they do, all Israel wants is security. Israel, Israelis live to survive and protect each other. They, they just have a consciousness of everyone wants to kill us and everyone around us wants to kill us and they just want security. So it's brilliant. This plan was brilliant because what happens is if, if, they, if they were able to become the center of this, this transportation hub, which I mean, so right, right now if China or India is shipping, it's going to go up through the Suez Canal and it takes a few days. This would have knocked a few days off which in a few days knocked off in shipping from China to Europe to the United States, whatever. That's trillions of dollars in savings. If Israel's at the center of it, it would have been a massive economic boost, but this is what's called economic diplomacy, which is once your neighbor's economies are tied to your economy, now they don't want chaos in Israel. They want peace in Israel because if there's chaos, it hurts their economy. So this was going to be a beautiful success victory for Netanyahu for Israel, for their economy, for their security. And so sure enough, they were right on the verge. Iran jumped in because Iran are Shia, Saudi are Sunni. They both don't, they didn't want to see the Saudis have a victory. So Iran has been funding Hamas, even though Hamas is Sunni, you know. Anyway, it's, so it was Iran primarily was the instigator behind all of this to thwart this 
regional peace agreement to thwart Israel from having, becoming this regional transportation hub. And the other nation that was probably behind it quite a bit is Turkey in Qatar. Turkey houses um, some of the leaders of Hamas, like um, Ismail Haniya. I mean, these guys live in Turkey in their mansions, and they're billionaires. Like, they are the most corrupt, uh, you know, race-baiting hustlers. You know, meanwhile, their people, everyone talks about how the Gazans live in this open-air prison, and they live in poverty, but their leaders that are calling them and planning for them to go kill themselves, to kill other people, live as billionaires in their mansions in Turkey or Qatar. Right, so anyway, it's Turkey and Iran that are primarily, it's, it's Iran and then secondarily Turkey behind the effort to do all of this, so. Thanks for uh, letting me ask this question. I'm asking it because I'm thinking there are probably a lot of other brothers and sisters that feel the same way. <clears throat> Brother Lima, my heart goes out to you because that's kind of where I was. And if someone always said, Are you, do you believe in replacement theology, I'd say, what's replacement theology? But I was thinking that. <clears throat> excuse me, pre-tribulation, all that stuff. And so now, because of, in no low, uh, small part, because of FAI and all your teachings and everything like that, I have a burning passion now for the Jewish people and preparing for the endurance of the saints and, you know, interceding. All those things that we're called to do, yet I'm surrounded by a bunch of people that I love very dearly in my church and everything, and they're posting stuff on Facebook about pre-tribulation and don't worry about any of this stuff kind of thing, and they're missing out on on the urgency of what we should be doing yeah I don't want to wade in and get in Facebook wars but I also sure. it's it's burning in my heart so much it's hard for me to sit back and just let this stuff sit there yeah. and so how do we engage without you know causing so much division and getting in Facebook fights yeah I'm probably not the best person mm. to ask um, <laughs> like this fighty fighty guy from Boston with a lot of stress at home I'm like, what do you say, stranger? Um, I don't tell him my kid just gave someone a Nazi salute. I just, like, this guy seems agitated. I am because your theology stinks. Um, look, here's the thing. I want to be very clear. There's a lot of issues to me that are very important, that are worth contending over. But I always tell people, people constantly reach out to me. They go, my pastor completely rejects all of the things that I've learned from you that I'm so excited about. And I sent him this email and he responded off-puttingly. I go, who cares? Serve your pastor, love your community, don't break fellowship over the pre-tribulational rapture, any of these things. Don't get upset with people because they're not where you were six months ago. Yep. You know what I'm saying, this sort of thing. Just like, look, people don't have the time and the energy to read a thousand books and to give themselves to the things and all the stuff that you've read and learned. Just serve your community, be part of a local church, and if there's something that really just drives you crazy and you can't take it anymore, then maybe, you know, you, you, you have to have that conversation. But when it comes to social media and stuff like that, look, we're entering, you know, that meme, it's like a Star Wars meme, that weird alien, and he, he's one of the commanders, and he goes, it's a trap! You know, like the, the entire world is a trap right now. Like the entire world is custom tailored designed to provoke us to get upset and tell people off on social media. And it's a trap. Just do as the best you can. And if, if there's somebody that you know that's one of your friends, then get coffee with them. Because you can always understand each other's differences face to face much better than you can on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> as a rule.
and don't follow my example. No. I don't know, Lyle. There you go. You're good. Okay. All right. Thank you for all your answers to these questions and wondering, just for everybody, the the kid um, who wants to help Israel, all of us who want to do something tangible. I know that you have a couple of organizations you're affiliated with that are actually doing things on the ground. Um, you know from humanitarian aid to helping build shelters, whatever it is, I wonder if you could tell us from $5 to 5,000 how we can help, where we can put um, our help. Yeah, I mean, so right now, like again, if you want to donate financially, so yeah, it's Frontier Alliance International. Um, and we've got a couple different things. We've got a bomb shelter campaign where we're helping to refurbish, because you've got all these bomb shelters all over Israel, public bomb shelters. Um, but a lot of times if you go, they're just like filthy, filled with drug needles and they're trash, you know, like just the homeless dudes go in there and do drugs. And so like refurbishing these so that people can actually like go into them if they're needed. Um, and I know that's horrible, but um, that's just the reality in Israel. Um, so we're doing that, refurbishing bomb shelters. But also right now what we're doing is like Israel is... Israel as a nation is absolutely amazing. Like, every single person in the country has to serve in the IDF. The amount of, like, fraternity and brotherhood that that creates in, in, the, in that country, you can have people on complete opposite ends of the spectrum. There's this unity knowing that we are a people that everyone else hates, everyone else wants to kill, and we've been trained, we've served in the IDF, we know all the security issues. There's, there's something really, really beautiful there, but also, in this situation, they call up the entire country. The entire nation is part of the reserves, for the most part, and everyone pitches in. It's like all hands on deck. So the other thing we're doing is we're bringing up truckloads of stuff and just going like, here's a bunch of, you know, 17, 18-year-old kids, or 18, 19-year-old kids sitting there terrified on the border staring at Hezbollah, and we're going up there with things like socks and food and things that literally they don't even have a budget for and so and, and listening to them and saying what do you guys need not just hey guess what we got you some socks but um you know stuff that they actually do care about so much socks um and so yeah just basically loving just loving israeli soldiers and and standing with them in solidarity so that's that's what it looks like right now we've only got a team of three right there and then two more jeff and stephanie that stephanie's spoken here um, I think that they're trying to get there as soon as they can, so we'll have a little bit of a larger um, group. I mean, I say three, actually. There's more. We've got a few, few workers that are, that are with us. Um, they're not even believers, but they, they love what we're doing. So, yep, that's long and short of it. All right, blessings, guys. Have you enjoyed this? Super helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, just want to reiterate Frontier Alliance International. Um, Joel is a great resource and will never plug his own stuff or toot his own horn or point you to that. So we're pointing you to that. Frontier Alliance International, a great place for you to invest in. Stand with me. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we love your people. And right now as a church family, we say that we love the people of Israel. We stand with them. 
Lord, we ask that you would show us how to most effectively in our own lives, with our own finances, in our own interactions with Jewish people to support them and represent you well to them. Thank you for Joel. I pray a blessing on he and Amy and his family. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.